You'd open your Bibles to the book of Matthew chapter 4. While you're turning there, I uh, just want to let you know if you'd be in prayer for Michael Walker and his family. Uh, his mom, Mary Ann, passed away this afternoon. Um, and, uh, you know, she knew the Lord, and that makes a major difference in how we handle the passing of a loved one. And then also uh, be in prayer, I think, uh, this morning, Mr. Neal, Reagan left. His brother passed away this week unexpectedly. Um, and so his brother lives up in uh, North Carolina, so he's on his way up there uh, for his funeral. So be in prayer for him as well as he travels and for the family. So let's pray before we begin tonight. Our Father in heaven, as we bow before you, Father, we are so grateful that you are always with us in every single circumstance that we must face in life. We thank you, Lord, that you do not leave us alone, that you continue to give to us your comfort, and that, Father, also you've comforted us with the truth of your word, the Father, we may be prepared in advance for all the things that will come our way as we live life here on this, in this world. So, Father, we want to pause for a moment and ask, Lord, that you be with Michael and his family as they grieve the loss of their mom. Uh, we understand, Lord, that when those that we love get older, uh, that there's kind of a, a tension that is there because we, uh, especially if they're going through difficulty or they're in pain, uh, we don't want to see that elongated. Uh, but, Father, at the same time, we don't want to let them go because, Father, we understand that life is precious and we want to hold on to them as long as possible. And, Father, we are so grateful that, uh, again, you've given to us your son, Christ, and that we have the gospel. And that for those of us who believe, Father, we know that even though it is a painful uh, goodbye, that it is temporary. Uh, Father, we have the confidence and the assurance that we will be reunited with them again in a place that is perfect. And so, Father, we ask that you would comfort Michael and his family with uh, the very clear truths of your word. We also want to pray, Father, for our brother Neil as he uh, makes the trek up to North Carolina. Uh, we ask, Lord, that you would also continue to comfort him in his time of grief and be with his family during this time as they uh, bury his brother. And again, Father, we are grateful, Father, Lord, for the gospel and for your ongoing involvement in our life and that you don't just leave us to ourselves. And Father, this evening as we continue our study in the life of Christ as it's presented to us uh, from the pen of Matthew, we thank you, Father, for your word and for really what we have about the life of Christ. We pray that you would help us, Father, as we seek to understand uh, as fully as possible all that was going on, that, Father, we may have a better grasp of why those things took place the way they did, why Jesus said the things that he said, that the, the truth of uh, what Christ has given to us would burn deep into our hearts and our minds. And Father, we will remember these truths and that they will shape us. So we are grateful, Father, that these things have been preserved for us in your word. And so we ask this evening then that you would help us as we dig into the book of Matthew. We do thank you, and we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So Matthew 4, beginning in verse 1, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, 
and their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. So this evening what we're going to be doing is spending all of our time kind of taking a step back and and looking at the whole picture of what's going on here to give to us a good uh, grasp of the importance of this event, uh, I guess you would say the background uh, and the surrounding issues in this event, so then when we look at particulars, they will make even more sense to us and perhaps be even much more profound. Arno Frutenbaum says this about this passage. He says, The clear relationship between the baptism of Jesus and his temptation should not be missed. The connection is seen in two ways. First, at his baptism, he said that he had come to fulfill all righteousness. At his temptation, this righteousness was tested. Second, at his baptism, God the Father declared him to be the beloved son. At his temptation, he was challenged to prove this. So again, notice that when you, when you read through this, and, and it's always struck me when reading this passage, where it reads, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. That the temptation here of Jesus was clearly God's plan, and we see the Holy Spirit taking an active role here. And what sometimes we can overlook is the active role that the Holy Spirit takes from the very beginning is to guide him into the wilderness to be tempted. That, that's what he's doing. I think initially what that should uh, cause us to begin to think about uh, in our lives as Christians, because in our culture there tends to be at times a mixture of some superstitious ideas or a culturally mix of ideas about God and the way God does things and what God is going to do and what the Bible actually teaches us. And so sometimes we may have this naive view of things that, well, I know that God wasn't leading me there because of all the bad things that happened. Uh, That's not a true statement. It could be true. It's not necessarily true. It could be that's exactly what God was intending to have happen. He was leading you there to be in that spot for maybe several reasons. There are times that he will lead us um, and allow us to be tested. We're, we're brought to a place to be tested, and God has his reasons for that. So even though we know that God will not himself tempt us with evil, we do know that definitely God is going to test us and allow us to be tested, and also that God is going to not necessarily always lead us to uh, circumstances or events that will always be successful or happy. He definitely will lead us into, into times, into, into places that may be dark uh, because, he, because of his plan for us and what he wants us to do. And we see that illustrated for us here in that Jesus is, is, is following the lead of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, first of all, leads him into the wilderness. And secondly, for the specific purpose of him being tempted. And so we're just going to kind of keep that in mind. Uh, that, um, again, becoming a believer doesn't mean that everything is just always going to be wonderful and rosy. And that any bad things that come along are just always of the devil, so to speak. And God is never in that. The devil himself tempts Jesus. God is in this every step of the way. And that should be of great comfort to us uh, as well. 
But also, I want you to uh, uh, compare this. Again, in verse 2, it says, And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. So in Deuteronomy chapter 8, in verses 2 through 3, it reads this way. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you, and he let you hunger. So there's a lot of parallels in the life of Christ and events that took place in the life of Israel in the Old Testament. We know that Moses fasted 40 days and 40 nights. Jesus, many have said, appears here uh, in the New Testament as a new Moses because he's bringing a new law. Uh, Israel also was in the wilderness for 40 years. In fact, again, the texts from Deuteronomy that are cited uh, here were commands that God gave to Israel when he tested Israel for 40 years in the wilderness. Again, unlike Israel of old, Jesus, as Israel's representative, passes the test. Some scholars have compared the battle of wits between Jesus and the devil to the way rabbinic debates were conducted. Jewish stories also praise those who endured and passed the severest moral test. So again, the testing of Jesus is seen, as, is, is seen by many as being a very important aspect in his life. Uh, remember, nothing happens by accident. Nothing was recorded and preserved for us as being just kind of a side note uh, in the life of Jesus. Remember that uh, in the three to four years that Jesus was ministering and the you know, 34, 35, 36 years or so that he lived, we have about 80 to maybe 88 days of his life recorded. That's it, out of all those years. So these are significant. Remember that God has specifically preserved these uh, for a reason. So we want to make sure that we're paying attention and paying attention to the details and to what's going on. Warren Wiersbe says this, From the high and holy experience of blessing at the Jordan, Jesus was led into the wilderness for testing. Jesus was not tempted so that the Father could learn anything about his Son, for the Father had already given Jesus his divine approval. Jesus was tempted so that every creature in heaven, on earth or under the earth, might know that Jesus Christ is the conqueror. He exposed Satan and his tactics, and he defeated Satan. Because of his victory, we can have victory over the tempter, just as the first Adam met Satan. So, that, so the last Adam met the enemy. Adam met Satan in a beautiful garden, but Jesus met him in a terrible wilderness. Adam had everything he needed, but Jesus was hungry after fasting for 40 days. Adam lost the battle and plunged humanity into sin and death. Jesus won the battle and went on to defeat Satan in more battles, culminating in his final victory on the cross. So again, this, this aspect of what we see here, it reminds us again, uh, I would say in a sense it kind of brings us back to earth in the sense of the reality of the life that you and I are living as Christians. That the life that you and I are living, everything that's going on on this planet is very intimately connected to the spiritual dynamics that are going on all around us. That this is not just some physical world we live in and the spiritual aspect of life is just kind of an afterthought or a minor role. It is majorly that. What we are called to do, the way that we are called to live, has everything to do with God and God's will for your life. Uh, God's desire to save the lost from their sin. Uh, God preparing us, uh, saving us, preparing us to share all of eternity with them in, in the world to come. We want to make sure that we don't lose sight of that. 
And when you, when you work your way through the life of Christ, we're very much brought face to face to the reality of this because we see Satan is very active uh, when Jesus is on the earth. Satan is kind of running around and, and, and you know, almost in, in a panic trying to uh, disrupt everything that Jesus is trying to accomplish. This is reality that we see you know, playing out here. This is not just some nice story or allegory that kind of gives us spiritual meaning in our life or emphasis so that we can feel good about our trials and then move forward. This is really going on. Satan is really trying to thwart what the, the mission of Jesus. Uh, e- even though we might say that in his ignorance or maybe even his stupidity, uh, for him to even think for a moment that Jesus could really sin and turn away from God is just foolishness. He's, he's going to try. He, he's going he's gonna to give it everything that he has to, to again, disrupt the plan of God. He, he wants to make sure that that doesn't succeed. The souls, the countless souls of individuals kind of hang in the balance when all this is taking place. So again, this is not some nice, just some drama that's a nice story, like maybe Aesop's fables. Well, again, what we are reading here is history. This event took place, and it has very real and important meaning. So again, it's important also to note this. That when Jesus faced Satan, when he faced the enemy, he faced the enemy as a man. Now, we'll, we'll make reference to this throughout our entire series on the book of Matthew. Remember that Jesus <clears throat> is the perfect God-man. It's not 50-50. He is 100% human and he's 100% divine. It's a, it's a difficult thing to grasp, but it's, it's important for us to remember that, that he is both of those things. So... What we want to make sure we're noticing here is that when Jesus faces temptation here that's given to him by Satan, remember that the very first words that Jesus says is, man shall not live by bread alone. So we don't want to allow ourselves to think, or we should not allow ourselves to think, that Jesus is somehow using his divine powers to conquer Satan. So we, we, like if you're telling your, this, this, kid, this story to your kids, you don't want to say, well, of course we know that Jesus is going to win this battle because he's God. There's, that's true, but we're missing the point. Jesus is our example. Jesus is showing us how we can live this life, uh, this victorious life that God has called us to live, and he's living it as a man. And so he is defeating Satan by depending upon the word of God, by depending upon God himself. He's not using his divine superpowers to be able to conquer the evil one. He is able to withstand uh, the onslaught of Satan as a human being dependent upon the resources that God gives to you and to me. So therefore, he really is an example of how we can overcome temptation. Because if, if he was to use his divine powers, you and I did always have an out. We could always say, well, you know, I mean, if I was Jesus, I could overcome this because he, I would have divine superpowers. But I don't have that. Well, Jesus only makes use of what we have. Uh, we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We have the word of God. We also have the promise of God that he would ensure that you and I would never be tempted beyond our ability to actually resist. That God is always going to provide a way of escape. Let me also point out that when Jesus then conquers Satan here, that it mentions at the end of this text that we read that the angels came and ministered to Jesus. He was exhausted. All right, so he wasn't, he wasn't uh, you know, he didn't finish this battle and then, you know, put his cape back on and fly to the next town to fight evil. That's not what he did. He needed to be ministered to. He was, he was weak. He was in need uh, of, of help as a man. 
And so we want to make sure we keep that, that tension in play there and, and make sure that we're always thinking about that when we look at the things that Christ does, the things that Christ says, and what it is that he's, again, seeking to accomplish. So again, Jesus used the spiritual resources that are available to you and me today, primarily being the power of the Holy Spirit of God and the power of the Word of God. And in one sense, that's kind of bad news for us because we now have no excuse. It's kind of like the, the message of Romans. I've, I've never really liked it uh, in one sense as a, as, a, as a weak human being because what Romans, I think, makes very clear to us believers is that when you and I sin, we only sin because we want to. We never sin because we have to. Darn. You know, I just, it's just I, I just, I have, there's no out for me to, you know, escape the responsibility. So we can feel overwhelmed when we're tempted, but we're never truly overwhelmed. And that's a, that's a very important distinction. Uh, and that should humble us and also cause us maybe to cling to Christ even more tightly uh, because we see that uh, we have a great need for him. Jesus, again, had nothing in his nature that would give, Nathan, uh, that would give Satan a foothold. Uh, but again, the temptations were, were the same. They were just as real. That's where it gets kind of difficult to really, when you try to get into the details, when you know, there's, there's volumes of books and articles written about you know, trying to answer the question, could Jesus actually sin? And, you know, you have those who say, well, in one sense, yes, he could. Another saying, well, in one sense, it is absolute, absolute impossibility that he could have sinned. And, and, and the reason why there's that debate is people trying to figure out, so then can we say that the temptations were really genuine? You know, w w was he truly tempted to go in this way? So uh, I, I want to make sure I'm not guilty of heresy. So I always try to be very careful when I answer that. So, I, you know, I, there's a lot of nuances to my answers. But here's the deal. So I would say that, yes, the temptations are very real because I do not think that God's playing a game with us. I do not think he's playing around and, and say, well, we're going to pretend that Jesus is really being tempted because, you know, those who get saved after Jesus' death, they're going to need this encouragement. I don't think God is, is, going to, is doing that. So the temptations are very real. Uh, and so there is a very real, uh, but again, remember that the Bible tells us that when you and I are tempted, uh, we're drawn away by our own lust. Well, Jesus didn't have any of that. Okay, we're drawn away by our own, our own desires. His only desire was to do the will of God. Now, we can understand that a little bit this way, that when you and I become believers, you know, there, there, there's this transformation that takes place and then is also taking place. And what, we, what many of us should realize, anyway, is that a lot of our desires begin to change. And the desires, some of the desires we had before, we don't have now. So let's just use a simple one uh, to kind of illustrate this. So let's just say, for example, that uh, an, an individual is, uh, let's say that they're an alcoholic, and so they're just they're enslaved to alcohol. Just absolutely, there's, that's, that's it for them. So they then become a believer. Now, I'm a firm believer in everything the Bible says, so when it comes to that kind of an addiction, what we do know is that the alcohol really has very little to do with the addiction itself. Uh, the addiction is driven by that individual's desires. Um, it, the alcohol doesn't have any special control over them. Uh, so when it comes to that, then, that individual, whatever drives that individual, the way that they approach life, the way they live, what they want from life, whether it's 
approval or simplicity or ease of life, all these different things, those things begin to change. So as this individual then, uh, what will happen is they begin to lose the desire to drink. They, they will at least begin to lose the desire to deal with life by turning to alcohol. So it's, it's not necessarily where they have to, you know, every day wake up, I'm not going to drink, I'm not going to drink, I'm going to be strong. They may do that in the very beginning, but as they grow as Christians, that's, and that's really important that we recognize that because it's true for all of us. Uh, we can make a bunch of rules to try to be good Christians, and, you, and you're just going to get tired of doing that. But, but if we depend upon the transforming aspects of the Spirit of God, if you and I become different people, obedience to God becomes much easier because what, what begins to happen is we view his commands as things we already want to do. Well, I already want to do that. So th- the fact that it's an imperative is, in one sense, of very little importance to me because I'm not driven only because it's an imperative. My desires have changed. So then what takes place then, if I am, if, so if a temptation, if someone comes along, let's say I go through a real, you know, go back to the alcoholic guy or the former alcoholic, we're back to him, and he goes through a time of great difficulty in his life. Let's say several people that are close to him die. Uh, he's having difficulty at work. Maybe he's even unsure that he's going to be able to keep his job because the company is facing difficulties. So there's a lot of pressure on him, the kind of pressure before that drove him uh, very easily and quickly to drink. And so he's, he's undergoing all of this, and he's, he's living his life as a Christian, and he meets an old friend, and his friend says, you know, they, they go out to eat. His friend says, look, let's just, why don't we just have a beer? I know you're going through a hard time. Let's just kind of relax. Let's just have a beer. And so he's, you know, he's, he's uh, at that moment, there's that temptation. It's a real temptation. But he easily says, oh, no, that's okay. And he may even say, yeah, no, because I'm afraid that if I, if I take that beer, it's, it's going to lead to six others. And his friend may even say, well, yeah, but it's only once. You know, I'll drive you home. You know, I understand what it means to drown your sorrows. You know, we all, you know, he's going through, all, he's giving him all these excuses. But once again, because he's been growing as a Christian, the temptation is real, but the power of that temptation is, is it's been losing its grip on him because his desires have become different. So back with Christ then, Christ has never had these desires his desires were always pure, always wanted to do the will of God. And so the temptations are real, but there's not a whole lot of power to them because he is so set on accomplishing the will of God in, in submitting to the will of God and doing the will of God. There's an interesting note by a man by the name of Samuel Leish, and he says this, one can legitimately explain the temptation that's uh, written about here in the beginning of the gospel. He says three things. First, This temptation is to indicate that Jesus is the Messiah who will overpower the forces of evil as represented by Satan. So when we talk about the Messiahship of Jesus, even though, and I use the word Messiah a lot, I believe it's a correct term. Remember, it's really no different than talking about Christ. It just simply means the anointed one. Jesus is God's anointed one. Uh, He's the one that's been anointed by God to bring salvation, to conquer sin. Uh, to redeem Israel, all the things that the Bible speaks about. So here, uh, we, we do need to recognize that, yes, he is, he is the anointed one. The anointed one, we would expect him to overcome Satan. That's exactly what we see here in this battle. And we, so we should be encouraged by that. Secondly, the confrontation with Satan uh, could be seen as Jesus struggles with himself and overcoming the evil inclination, which is a part of all men, 
and which is, external, which is ex- externalized in the literature uh, by the figure of Satan. So the idea is with this. When I say that Jesus struggles with himself, don't misunderstand that, that somehow Jesus now is struggling with the sin nature. He doesn't have a sin nature. But he is struggling in this sense. The Bible makes it clear that the flesh is what? It's weak. Now, we know that our flesh is extremely weak because of our sin nature. But our flesh is also weak because of the curse of sin. In other words, you and I are suffering, and we suffer, in one sense, every day. And it has nothing to do with our sin, but it has everything to do with the curse of sin. We get older. Our bodies fall apart. We forget things. All those, all those types of things that make the flesh weak. We get tired. We get hungry. That's the weakness of the flesh. Uh, the weakness of the flesh is then a very broad thing, a very broad term that we can use. And it's not always uh, negative. It's just a truth. Now, it often is negative because we know that because the flesh is weak, we are more susceptible to to, uh, to temptation because of the weakness of the flesh. So there's a very real weakness that is there. So we need to recognize that Jesus being 100% man, there is a very, re- very re- uh, real weakness in the life of Jesus. He did get hungry, as it says here in the text. All right, so he wasn't just playing the part in a movie where the script says you should be acting hungry because you haven't eaten for 40 days. But because he's you know, this superman who's divine, he's not really hungry. No, he's hungry. And we know that when you are in that state and you are tired, you, are, you and I are much more susceptible to temptation. So Jesus, in one sense then, is in a weakened state, yet is victorious because, again, the grace of God is sufficient. It is sufficient to make us strong, and it makes him strong. And so uh, this confrontation with Satan uh, could be seen as Jesus struggles with himself and overcoming the evil inclination. So that's more of the application for us, uh, but nonetheless, that is what's taking place. And finally, the third thing is, this struggle here sets up a model for the church. Uh, and again, the church is made up of individual believers. We also must struggle with temptation and overcome it. We, we need to struggle. If Jesus went through a struggle, and again, when we say that he struggled... Uh, we don't mean that he was struggling because he was going to fail at this, but again, this is a very real thing that's taking place. We are going to struggle with temptation, and we, and we must overcome. We must prevail. We can prevail. God expects us to prevail. We know that God also knows that we are going to sin, and we're going to fail at this, and God makes provision for that. We know that we are forgiven. We know that we can be restored. All those things are very important, but we don't want to bypass the, the truth of this, that God desires, it is the will of God, that we engage in the struggle of life. And part of that, I believe, adds a sense of authenticity and credibility to us, the messenger that carries the gospel of Christ to others. If we were living just the easy life and we had no struggles at all with any kind of evil inclination as Christians... We, and we begin to share the gospel with our co-workers or maybe family and, and friends who know us well, and they know that we have no struggles, ah, they, they're just going to write off, uh, in, mo- in many cases, they're just going to write off whatever we say about the gospel. Say, well, well, you can say whatever you want. All I know is because of you. This is easy for you because you are unique, special, whatever. They want to try to find a way to, uh, because this is what man does. I don't want to be accountable to God. Um, I don't want to have to 
to submit to what he says, so I'm going to excuse your holiness and basically try to chalk it up the fact that, well, you were just born that way. So it's important for us uh, to recognize that God desires us to be in the struggle, to overcome sin, to overcome sin in the way that he wants us to overcome sin. So then when we're sharing with other people, we're sharing our life with them, not just our words, but our life with them, there will, there will be times it's appropriate for them either, either to see us seeking to overcome evil or maybe even be part of the experiences we share with them that we're struggling to overcome evil and God's been good to us and we've been able to overcome or, or perhaps we'll do it this way, we will share what, what we were like. In other words, it's not always sharing what we were like before we came to Christ. Maybe it's important to share what we were like shortly after we became a Christian so, in, so people can be aware of the growth as a believer. That, that we, ha- we, didn't, we, didn't have, we, we hadn't arrived, so to speak, when I became a believer, or six months after I became a believer, that I've continued to improve. In fact, Paul, there's a sentence in, in the letters that Paul writes to Timothy where he tells them, him that it's important that, that his growth needs to be evidenced by all. In other words, he, he's encouraging Timothy to allow others to see that he's growing as a Christian, that he's growing and maturing as a believer. And so it's important for, for us to be involved in that. And so we see this with Jesus, and this should be a, a big encouragement to us uh, in the life that God has called us to live. So God's aim then in allowing these temptations was to prove the sinlessness of his anointed one, that, that he's the one, that he is, uh, um, uh, he is qualified to be the one. If, if, you, if you think about the comic book world and the fantasy world, uh, in literature, you know, there's always the stories of, you know, always, look, there's, always, there's always something going on. There has to be a hero. There always has to be a hero. Uh, and in some of these cases, you know, you're looking for uh, deliverance uh, from some great evil. And so whoever is the one who's anointed uh, has to be special and unique. They often have to prove themselves to be capable and to be qualified. Now, you know, you can only take that so far. But the idea is, is is that in, even in many of those stories, it has more to do with just, not just physical ability or even superpowers that they may possess, but it's the character of, and strength of their will. You know, their resolve to, to, be, to do what is right morally. Well, the same kind of idea, that's kind of where we get that, those ideas from, is, is from this, but this is the ultimate story because this is history and this is dealing with reality. And so, again, this shows us that, that God intends to show us uh, that Christ is qualified, that he is sinless, and he overcomes even great temptations, even when he's at a disadvantage. And the, and the disadvantage here is that he's not eaten for 40 days. Uh, and just in case you're wondering, because people write about this at times, uh, that for an individual who is fasting on a regular basis, then fasting for 40 days is absolutely possible. Uh, if you've never fasted before, it's not a good idea to say, I'm going to now fast for 40 days. This, this is not going to work. You're going to end up in the hospital uh, if you try to do that. Uh, but most likely, Jesus, uh, again, this is a little bit of speculation, but it's not that out there because of the Jewish culture. Uh, but a lot of the Pharisees, a lot of the rabbis, a lot of those who are very spiritual men um, and women uh, in Israel, during the time they, they, at the minimum, fasted one day a week. I believe they fasted every Thursday. Uh, but for many of the Pharisees and many of the leaders, uh, it was their habit to fast twice a week. So they would go all day Tuesday and all day Thursday without eating. They would drink water, but they would not eat. And that was their, that was their habit for life. And so an individual who has that habit, uh, then, then your body is, is, um, 
uh, at a point to where you can go on an elongated fast and, and your body's going to be okay uh, with that. So we don't want individuals to think that somehow that this is some superhuman feat. It's a great feat, but again, it's one that others have, have been on 40-day fast before. Uh, sometimes you read about prisoners. This was quite common back in the 60s and 70s. Uh, uh, behind the Iron Curtain, prisoners would go on, would go on a, a hunger strike. Uh, and they would go sometimes 20, 25, 30 days. Uh, and in some of those cases, they would end up in the hospital. But in those situations, uh, for most of them, the reason why they end up in the hospital is because they're coming from a position where they've, they've, been, they've been beat. Uh, they've not had the best nutrition for all, those, all these months or years. And then, they, and then they go on a hunger strike. So, and yet they're still able to go 25, 30 days. So we just want, uh, I just want to remind you that this is, this is something that is definitely feasible and this is not some superhuman thing uh, that only, uh, only Jesus could do because he was the Son of God. Uh, again, as a man, he's able, he's able to do this. Satan had an aim in all of this, and, and that was the opposite of God's, which was to cause God's anointing one to sin. Um, again, as I've already mentioned, uh, I do not believe that Jesus was actually capable of sinning as such. But again, that did not discourage the devil from trying uh, or trying to do really the impossible. I also believe, and I got this from Arnold, he pointed this out, out uh, in his teachings, and that is Satan also wants to keep Jesus from the cross. And so he's offering him a shortcut to his messianic goal. What he means by that is this. Uh, the belief is, is that Jesus is going to rule the, the earth uh, in the messianic kingdom. Bef- before that can be done, the issue of sin must be dealt with. And so that's, that's the issue of the cross. So when Satan then makes the offer, and we'll cover this in more detail when we get to it, which will be later, if not tonight, um, but uh, when, when Satan makes a temptation for him to fall and worship him and he'll give him the kingdoms of the world, uh, that's basically he's offering him a shortcut. You want, you want to set up the messianic kingdom? Worship me, I'll give it to you right now. And so the idea is to thwart uh, Jesus going to the cross. And uh, so in one sense, the temptation of Jesus would have been... Um, he would have been offered a legitimate uh, end by illegitimate means. In other words, there's no shortcut here. He needs to, he needs to follow the, the will of God. When it comes to the term son of God, I want to spend just a, a little bit of time helping us to understand what, what that would have meant and what that meant to Matthew when he writes this and what it means to those who are reading this, especially for the first time. Um, uh, again, we have the advantage of the entire revelation of God, and so that's not a bad thing, and, and that sometimes colors our understanding of phrases, uh, which again is not necessarily bad, but we want to make sure that we have an under- a grasping of what is meant then when he wrote it, and how people would have understood it, because it would have been maybe a little more limited than how we understand it to be. So in the Jewish commentary, it's a one-volume commentary on the scriptures, and it, it lists six things about this phrase, or the title, Son of God. And so as they look at the Bible, they, they've come up with this. Number one, uh, Son of God is a title that's used for a godly person uh, without divine or supernatural overtones. In other words, you can be, they can be used in an individual who is very spiritual, very godly, not necessarily a miracle worker, but one who is very godly. Number two, um, it was used by one who is a special one sent by God. Uh, number three, uh, Son of God is, uh, is used in Luke as the Son of God in the flesh, um, Number four, it's a human whose presence on earth required a special creative act of God. Uh, so that would be Adam, 
He was created by God specifically. Uh, that would be Jesus, who uh, we know that uh, Mary became pregnant by the work of the Holy Spirit. And so he's called the second Adam. So instead of God referred to this unique individual, his presence on earth required a special creative act of God. Number five, um, Jesus who could in his early lifetime relate to God as his personal father. Remember that, that no one related to God that way before. Jesus was the first one. We are able to because we are adopted into the family of God because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. Before that, this idea there was, there was the idea in the Old Testament that people could have a relationship with God. God spoke to them. God led them. God provided for them. Uh, they spoke to God. That aspect of it was, was obviously very unique. No other religion offered that. And, of course, Judaism was the one true religion at that time. But they, they did not think of referring to God as being their father in an intimate level. Jesus was the first one to come along and speak that way. And that, and that helps us to understand how we can relate to the Father and how the Father relates to us. That's a very important um, aspect to this. And then sixthly, um, when it comes to the, the title, Son of God, it, it refers to one who's the divine or the eternally existent individual or the word, as we know from John, who always uh, was and always has and always will be uh, within the inner structure of what we would call the Trinity. Um, he is in his essence the Son, and the Son is equal uh, to the Father and to the Spirit. And so here when the adversary, when Satan refers to him as the Son of God, all of these things uh, would, were probably meant we want to add to that a little bit, and we want to add this. Number one, it is interesting to note um, that Satan, in the temptation of Jesus, he challenged Jesus on the basis of his being the Son of God. If you are the Son of God, that's what he brings up. He brings that up. Um, so Satan is challenging Jesus to basically misuse his power and authority as the Messiah. So basically what Satan was saying is, you are the Messiah, let's see you act like it. That's what he was kind of pressing there. In Luke chapter 4, in verse 41, where Jesus is speaking to a, a man who's demonically possessed, the demons speak, and they refer to Jesus as the Son of God. And it says, And demons also came out of many, crying out, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew that he was the Christ. So this is what's important about that, that verse. When the demons come out and, and are crying out and proclaiming him to be the Son of God, when Jesus rebukes them, it, it adds then that he rebukes them so that they should not speak because they knew what? He was the anointed one. They knew that he was the Messiah. So the connection here then with Son of God is Son of God is, is used primarily, but not exclusively, for the anointed one, for the Messiah. That's what that's talking about. This is God's anointed one. This is my son, uh, as God said. So again, being the Son of God was the same as being the Christ or the same as being the Messiah. And basically in almost every instance in the New Testament, being the Son of God meant that Jesus was the Christ. That's how it's used. There are hints, however, as you continue to work your way through the New Testament, that as the Son of God, Jesus was more than just a mere man. All right? He's more than just a mere son of David who was going to sit on the throne of his father David. And again, that comes out very strongly in the Gospel of John. So as Matthew writes this, 
Again, his audience, when, when they come across this phrase, son of God, their immediate mindset is going to be thinking about, well, this is the anointed one, this is the Christ, this is the Messiah. What we also know is what's being developed here, what they were also learning in a sense on the fly as Jesus revealed himself to them, that that meant that he was more than just, just a man. Remember that for many of them, as, for the Jews, as they were waiting for the Messiah to come, there was still a sense of uncertainty as to all that the Messiah would be. That the Messiah was going to be the Son of God uh, as, in the sense of being divine. There was, they, they weren't clear on that. That was being revealed to them as Jesus was... Uh, many of the things that he said and many things he did, he did to prove to them that he was the anointed one in a very special way. That he was not just a unique prophet or a special prophet or a special miracle worker. That he was beyond that. Remember, he did things that only God can do. That's why it's, it's so important when we come across that place where uh, on more than one occasion, uh, when Jesus is speaking to an individual and he makes the statement, your sins are forgiven you. There was no one teaching that the, that the Messiah was going to do that. And, and they were right when they were stunned by that and they were thinking, whoa, what's he saying? Only God can forgive sin." Exactly. That's why he said that. And then, of course, he does things to prove uh, that he indeed could forgive sin. So remember that that's kind of being developed for these individuals. They're, they're learning this. Uh, they are clearly enamored with who he is, those who believe, and they're very excited. But they're also learning because, because all of this was not clearly revealed to them in the Old Testament. It also seems to be clear at the trial of Jesus when he was asked by the, by the priest if he was a son of God. He admitted that he was. And what did that priest do? Well, they accused Jesus of blasphemy. What did they say? Oh, he's claiming to be God. So they, so they were, you know, they, they, there was a, a, for some of the ones who were more educated, they were thinking, yeah, this is, this is a unique title. You don't just throw this thing around. And so they were very upset by that. So in the Old Testament, the coming Messiah, the descendant of David, was to become God's son. To be God's son was to be the ruler, uh, the, to be the ruler that God had appointed of the line of David. As Israel's Messiah, Jesus was a son of God. Uh, but again, Jesus further clarified the matter, demonstrating that he was indeed God in the flesh. And as I mentioned before, John is very eager to make that point over and over again in the Gospel of John. So then the first century Jew understood the term, the son of God, to mean the Messiah. And then with uh, the further claims of Christ, they understood the term to mean that Jesus, as the Son of God, was not only the Messiah, but God incarnate. And once they saw that, they then understood more clearly what it says in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That was now becoming clear to them, and they were understanding it. Now, back to something that I just kind of mentioned briefly before, but I want to kind of emphasize this. Because when you read through the commentaries on this passage, a lot of them will talk about Jesus being in a representative role uh, during his temptation. And that's true. He was. They'll speak about him representing all believers. But it's normally only in what I would call messianic type of commentaries where they would point out that Jesus was also the representative of Israel as well. So remember that Jesus is coming to accomplish a lot of things when he, when he, when he comes to earth. You know, he, he's coming to redeem individuals, yes. He's also coming to redeem Israel. Uh, he's coming to fulfill 
um, the will of God, to fulfill what Israel failed to do. So there's a lot of this that's going on. There's this, there's this very deep connection uh, with all that was going on in the Old Testament. So there's five things. I got this from um, the, 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 back when I was much younger, listening to a lot of lectures by Arnold Futenbaum. Um, but nonetheless, he says that Jesus represents Israel, and we know this in five ways. So again, this just helps us to make that connection or bridge uh, the connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so the first thing is this. Jesus was addressed as a son of God, a title which relates him to God's chosen people. Why? Because Israel as a nation is called the son of God. In Exodus and Hosea, Jesus is called the son of God in Matthew 2.15, which cites Hosea. It's interesting, when I first heard that, which I was in my mid-20s, but I had read the Bible a couple times by then, and I had been in church my whole life. I don't know why I just never caught on the fact that Israel was called the Son of God. But, but again, why did God do that? To re- he was, Israel was to reveal to the world this unique and special relationship they had with God and the kind of relationship man can have with God. And so God uses this term of endearment with them. And so Israel is the Son of God. And of course, when Jesus comes along, he is the Son of God. The second thing is this. We've already mentioned this, so I'll go through it quickly. Jesus' temptation takes place in the wilderness, just as Israel was tested in the wilderness. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, I'll begin reading in verse 1. I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. They were overthrown in the wilderness. Jesus conquers in the wilderness. And so there's this, you know, he's, he's doing what Israel, he's accomplishing what Israel failed to do. He's doing what Israel was unable to do by their disobedience, by his obedience. And so the temptation of Jesus, is, as again we know, took place in the wilderness. I've already mentioned this, the third thing, and that's the use of the figure 40. Israel spent 40 years in the wilderness, and Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness. Number four, uh, the fourth reason, or fourth thing, is this. In both cases, the Holy Spirit was present. The Holy Spirit was present with Israel in the wilderness. Let me read to you from the book of Isaiah, chapter 63, beginning in verse 7. I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us, and the great goodness to the house of Israel, that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he said, surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. And he became their savior in all their affliction. He was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. Then he remembered the days of old of Moses and his people. Where, he, uh, where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit? who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the depths. Like a horse in the desert, they did not stumble. Like livestock, they go down into the valley. The Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. 
And so we are going to be doing those things that Israel failed to do. But also what we see in the life of Israel is a great parallel to the Christian life. And, and again, what you, what you see here is the Holy Spirit of God is present with them. The Holy Spirit of God was present with Jesus and was leading him. And the Spirit of God indwells his people and leads and directs us. Through his Spirit, we're going to be able to accomplish these things. We're going to be able to do this here where God's going to make for himself a glorious name. When we praise the name of God, that's what we're doing. We're glorifying his name. We're pointing to, to his greatness, that he's redeemed us. He will redeem others. He has transformed us. He will transform others. Uh, he will save his people from their sins. Uh, he's going to overcome sin, and sin is going to be completely eradicated one day. And so all of this meaning, all this depth is wrapped into this event that is taking place. And again, as I mentioned before, we do need to remember that it was the Holy Spirit himself who led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. And then the fifth thing is this, is that Jesus responded to the temptations of Satan by citing from one book of the Bible. All the Bible quotations that Bible gives to Satan are from the book of Deuteronomy. And that book is known as the covenant book with the people of Israel. And as a result of that, Jesus is also the representative of Israel, not just the representative of all those who believe. Alfred Edersheim concludes this. He says, the point of all of this is to show that where Israel as a nation had failed, the ideal Israelite, Yeshua the Messiah, succeeded. He became Israel's substitute, not only in these temptations, but also as the final substitute, the final sacrifice for sin. And so when we get together again, we're going to look at a little bit at how Jesus represents all believers, and then we'll get into the particulars of the temptation. But we needed all that as, as background so we can see the richness of, of this event and what is taking place here in the life of Christ. Uh, marvelous things for us to think about, maybe even share with others as, as we think through the gospel and think through the life of Jesus Christ, uh, maybe even more so as, as we approach this season, the Christmas season. Uh, hopefully these things will be what's dancing in your head. It won't be lollipops and sugarcane candy, but it'll be all these thoughts about the greatness of Christ and what he's come to accomplish. Uh, not only there, but then the, the really the great things that he's going to accomplish in our life and through us as we submit to him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again, we thank you for your work in, in the life of Christ and your work in us. Father, we pray that you would help us to think often about these things and, and view the richness of all that has gone on in the temptations of Christ and in his life. Well, it's an amazing thing, Father, to see how the whole Bible comes together in so many ways and in so many uh, aspects of the life of Jesus. And so, Father, we thank you for the consistent message that continues to ring true and ring loud here as we read through, the, read through the Gospel of Matthew. Father, we ask that as we think about these things, that they will continue to have a profound effect on us. The Father, we will become a much deeper spiritual people. The Father, we, will, we would think your thoughts after you. That, Lord, this would energize us to live each day to the fullest for your glory. And that we will find much joy in this. So, Father, as always, we thank you for your word, for preserving this for us. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.